Today's scripture reading comes from the gospel according to John chapter 16, beginning in the second half of verse 4 through verse 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How do you tend to respond to criticism, uh, to critical feedback? Uh, I don't like it when people criticize me, uh, even when it's done uh, gently and uh, properly and graciously. Uh, a few weeks ago, one of our members had uh, posted a request on eboard for a uh, leftover metal child's uh, swing set uh, to cover up with some chicken wire so he could have a chicken run in his yard uh, for some hens that he had. And that kind of started a few uh, poultry-related jokes going. Uh, somebody had talked about, I think, him uh, coming out of his shell, and uh, another person uh, said that would be foul play. And uh, I never want to miss an opportunity to get in a bad uh, pun. So I jumped into the conversation with, uh, you know, a couple of really bad jokes myself. Uh, like, you know, don't keep this humor all cooped up to yourself. And, uh, boy, this will be a real feather in your cap. And uh, I know terrible jokes, right? Uh, but I live by the adage, there ain't no bad joke like a dad joke. Uh, this, is, this is in my wheelhouse, right? Uh, so... Uh, the humor was bad enough, uh, but uh, I made the mistake of hitting reply all and sending these jokes out to everyone on eboard. And that just started a cycle of these chicken-related jokes going on all afternoon. And more people chimed in, and soon eboard was just this clutter of uh, bad humor that I had been part of starting. Now, some people found it kind of a pleasant distraction on their afternoon, and other people were saying, this is not what I signed up for, and uh, quit spamming my inbox. And I was unaware that this was happening because I have eboard set up so it goes into a special folder in my email. So Pastor Tom and Pastor Joey approached me and said they'd heard from a few people who were saying, this is not good. Uh, it's not okay uh, because I'm trying to do work and I keep getting these email updates, you know, like every 15 minutes with another chicken run joke or whatever. And, and, uh, and I was 
a little embarrassed, obviously, to think that I had been a part of uh, encouraging that and uh, encouraging people to think that eBoard is a platform for uh, bad humor, which it's, that's not what it's supposed to be about. Some people were confused, uh, honestly, by, by some of the stuff that went out, and uh, some people were frustrated, and some people just said, I'm done, and, and I'm out of eBoard if this is what it's going to become. Yuck, right? I, I don't like feeling like I was part of that, and, and, and I was embarrassed. I should have known better. And Tom and Joey were very gracious in how they approached me, uh, but I had to acknowledge that I was part of creating a mess that we're still in some ways, you know, kind of, kind of digging out of. What do you do when you're faced with a truth about yourself or something that you've done that you really would rather not hear? Now, you know, if it's unintentionally sending out bad jokes via email, that's one thing. But, you know, sometimes it can be a little more significant than that, right? Like, you really hurt somebody in a relationship that you care about, and, and somebody's talking to you about that, or a friend is confronting you about a habit that's maybe gotten out of control in your life, or somebody's hurt you, and you're just having a hard time forgiving that person and letting go of it. Or maybe there's just this kind of slow-simmering anger that's just beneath the surface, and it doesn't take much for it, for it to pop up. If we're honest, you know, we, we maybe get hints about those things, or people may try and talk to us, and, and our natural reaction, at least mine, often falls into one of maybe about three different responses. You know, we, we can deny it, oh, that wasn't me, or, uh, you know, it's not that bad, why are you making such a big deal out of it? We can defend it. Hey, there's no harm, no foul. I mean, come on. I, I had a good reason. I mean, you just, you don't get it, right? We can try and deflect it. You know, like, well, I didn't even start it, right? I was just going along with what everyone else was doing. It's not my fault. He did it, you know. That's a natural response, but it's not really a helpful response, is it? Because what we're doing is training ourselves when we do that to, to reject even helpful criticism. To the point where, you know, it's just our natural response is to put a hand up in somebody's face when they try and talk to us. And we end up hurting not just other people when we do that, we end up hurting ourselves. You guys probably know the story in the Bible of King David and uh, just the spiral of mess that he made out of his life at one point. And, and in the Psalms, David is reflecting on not just the consequences of adultery and murder and abuse of power, but what denying it and kind of holding that at arm's length did to him. I mean, he talked about it in the Psalms, like sin was crushing my bones and sapping my spirit and tormenting my soul and, and blocking my vision and, and wearying me physically. And that's what that does when, you know, we kind of hold the truth out at arm's length and we don't want to hear from people, Right? You know, Jesus tells us, uh, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And at least part of the answer to that prayer, biblically, is that God puts us in the church, in the community of God's people, where, yeah, it's, it's the Bible and it's the Holy Spirit, but it's the Spirit speaking into our lives through other people. And God will help lead us out of temptation and deliver us from evil as we're willing to let people speak into our lives about stuff that sometimes we have trouble seeing about ourselves and, and that maybe we don't want to acknowledge. 
And that, that part of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that sin is, I mean, it's not just stupid, it's not just futile, it doesn't just, you know, not satisfy us, it's destructive, it's addictive, and it's not just about breaking God's laws, you know, breaking the rules, it's, it's actually an, an act of kind of shaking our fist in God's face and saying, I know better than you and, and your ways are not the right ways, I'm, I know best. God created us to know him, to, to follow him, to run in the path that he's marked out for us in his word for our lives. And, and that's why we need this word. We need God's spirit to anchor us in his truth, to keep us on track with what's good and right and true and, and what we were made to experience. And, and, and yet sometimes we have a hard time seeing that in ourselves. And, and we need others. We need others to confront us when, when we don't get it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, nothing can be more compassionate than the reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Nothing could be more compassionate than to offer a loving reprimand that would bring someone back from, from a bad path they're heading down. I don't like it when people criticize me, but I need it. And you need it. We all need it. We need to hear the truth. We, God wants us to know the truth and live in the truth and, and grow in the truth. And, and that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Do you see that in verse 15? Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. All, the, all of God's insight, all, all of his wisdom, all of his direction, all of his goodness. And, and I take all of that and I entrust it to the Spirit who's going to declare to you all truth, all things that are to come. He will guide you in all the truth that you need to hear. Not just the, you know, pat you on the back kind of stuff that, that we love to hear, but the, hey, you know, this is not good. This is, this is not right, and, and you, need to, you need to change course. And so this morning we're looking at how the Spirit guides us in truth. That's what Jesus promises the Spirit's going to come to do. And, and we're going to see what that looks like in our lives and how that works and, and as the Spirit leads us. And, and we want to start by focusing in this, really zeroing in on these couple of verses that start at the end of verse 7. If I go, Jesus says, it's good that I go away because I only have one physical body that's limited in time and space. When I go, I'll send the Spirit and he'll continue what I'm doing, but he'll be able to do even more. I will send the Spirit, and when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, notice here, Jesus is saying, He's not saying I'm sending the Spirit to the world. He's saying there, there's a mission for the Spirit to speak into the world that we live in, but I'm sending the Spirit to you, to my people. And through my people, the message is going to go out that the world needs to hear. And first, he says, the Spirit will bring conviction for sin because they do not believe in me. In May of 1915, the British ocean liner, the Lusitania, was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine. Uh, it was a really bad hit. The ship started going down, and it was underwater in a matter of minutes. Very few people survived the sinking of that ship. One of the survivors was a uh, book publisher by the name of Charles Laureat. And, 
And as he was looking around, the boat is sinking. He's trying to look for people that he can help and, and help get people into life vests. And he notices that all these people going by him are not wearing their vests properly. One guy has like one arm through an armhole and then his head through the other armhole. And a number of people have their life vests on upside down. And, and there were markers posted next to the life vest about how to wear them, but nobody had read them. And so Laureate is trying to stop people and say, you've got it on wrong, but they're so freaked out by, by the ship sinking that they're convinced he's trying to take the life jacket from them, and they're like fighting him and, and running away from him. And so Laureate survives. He's in one of the lifeboats, and he has the life vest on, and he says he looks out and he sees the sea dotted with bodies of people who are wearing their life vests upside down, and so they drown with the life vests on because their head is under the water. 1,200 of the 1,960 passengers on the Lusitania perished, many of them because of that very thing. And the issue was not who deserved to live and who deserved to die. The, the, the question was not, who was a better person and who was worthy of being rescued. That's not what determined whether people lived or died. People died because they rejected the offer of rescue from the one person who had the truth that they needed to hear. There was one person who had the knowledge, the truth that they needed that could save them, and they refused to believe him. And so they perished. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world in regard to sin, not because they're disobeying God's laws, but because they refuse to believe in me, Jesus says. Do you find that interesting? It's fascinating. Jesus, earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 3, says, Whoever believes in God's Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, it's not our job to go out in the world and, and convict people of the bad things that they're doing and point out, you know, you should stop sinning here and you should stop doing this and you should stop disobeying God in that area. It's not that those things don't matter. But I think Jesus is trying to point out to us, to help us understand, the problem is not fundamentally behavior, but belief. And behavior always flows out of belief. And the real problem is, I need Jesus. And if I believe in Jesus for who he says he is, that will affect how I live. But the real problem is not that we're not obeying this commandment, we're not living up to that law, we're disobeying God in that area. If we focus on belief, on behavior instead of belief, we're going to end up with, you know, kind of a moralism that says, well, you know, clean up your act and, and God will love you. If, if you measure up to a certain standard, then, you know, you've done good enough and, and God will be pleased with you. That's the opposite of the gospel. That, that's the anti-gospel. The Spirit convicts the world regarding not sins, but sin, because there's one sin that matters. There's one sin that keeps us from knowing life. There's one sin that sends people to hell, and it is the sin of rejecting Jesus, because he is the only offer of rescue and salvation for the entire world. 
There is no other rescue. I can't rescue myself. None of us can. And the problem is, what do I do with Jesus? And the Holy Spirit comes to show us that we need a Savior and that God has graciously provided one. The Holy Spirit comes to say, don't you see? Haven't you been running long enough? Aren't you tired of being in charge and making a mess of your life? Are you ready to give it back to Jesus and follow him and find life? That's what the Holy Spirit comes to do graciously and and wondrously. You, You may not have come to the point of following Jesus in your life, but if you are here today, God has drawn you here and he's brought you here to hear this message that Jesus is the way. He is the only rescue. He is the only hope. And God is not talking about cleaning up your right and getting right. He is saying, come receive the rescue that Jesus alone provides. Have you done that? Will you do that? Because that's the message that God has for you today. The Spirit of God shows us the, the, the issue is not behavior but belief and that's true of all of us because my biggest problem your biggest problem is not disobeying God but mistrusting him the more I believe him the more I will follow him the more I love him the more I will look like him the more I trust him the the closer I will walk with him Because behavior follows belief. And if I believe that Jesus is the Savior and that he loves me and wants good for me, the behavior will flow from that. And and it's easy for us to get sidetracked, you know, in conversations about politics and morality and policies and laws and all that. And it's not that those things don't matter. But listen, when we have an opportunity to talk to someone about something that is significant. I think God's word is saying we better be talking about Jesus and not about clean up your act or this piece of legislation or whether we should pass that law. Not that those things don't matter, but this is the issue Jesus is saying and this is what the Spirit comes to show us. There's only one rescue that God has provided, and and he's graciously inviting us to step into it. And and that leads into the second thing that the Spirit shows us, that he comes to convict the world concerning righteousness, Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Now, I go to the Father is kind of Jesus' shorthand way of saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross I'm going to die for your sins and the sins of the world, not my own, because think about what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if he is sinless and perfect, and he has perfectly obeyed the Father, why is he going to the cross? And if he's going to the cross as a demonstration of what we need to understand about righteousness, what does that mean about me? There's nothing righteous in me. If the sinless son of God has to die for me, what, what do I have to boast about? See, that's the problem. I, I, I'd like to have something to boast about, right? Uh, many of you were at Don Fields Memorial Service last week. And, and, and I love this statement from Don that was shared by I think a couple of his grandkids. Don said, there's two attitudes that define our human experience. Me first, and I want to look good. 
And man, I want to look good. I don't know about you. I at least want to look better than other people, right? You know, well, look how smart I am. Look at all that I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've produced. Look at what I have. Look at where I went to school. You know, look at, look at me. Look at how good I am, especially in comparison to, to other people. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. If, this, if Jesus, by his spirit, comes to convict us of righteousness, it destroys that. Do you see it blows it all out of the water? What do I have to boast about? If Jesus is the one who has to go to the cross to die for me, the one righteous person for unrighteous Jeff and, and all of us, that kills our boasting. And I know, maybe, maybe you're saying, well, I don't, I don't boast. Well, I know, we're, we're smart enough to know we don't do that outwardly anyway, right? But, I mean, what's all the condemning and critiquing and criticizing others if it's not self-righteousness. Ugh, look how she's dressed. Oh my gosh, this guy is so slow. What a loser. Oh my gosh, I can't believe those people. What is that if, it, if it's not self-righteous boasting about how better I am than those people, right? We were uh, up in Lebanon uh, I think a couple of weekends ago, looking at a used car and coming back on uh, 865, you know, where it, where it merges into 465, two lanes go down into one lane, and I'm tootling along in the right lane, and uh, I start to merge over, because you have to, and I see this guy coming up in the, in the left lane behind me, like way faster, and I'm like, well, I mean, obviously it's going down to one lane, and he's going to have to slow down, because I'm merging over. He did not slow down. I had to slam on my brake and jerk the wheel back over into the shoulder. And I very kindly waved and said, God bless you, brother. <laughs> no, that's not what I did. I laid on my horn and I yelled a few choice words at that guy. And if you didn't hear me, it's not because of a lack of volume. I can tell you that much. Was, was I right to get angry at him? I don't know. The Bible says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It was offensive what that guy did. It was rude. It was dangerous. And, and I really have a hard time when drivers endanger my, my wife because of their selfishness. But that's not the only thing that made me angry. See, I was angry because I knew in my heart I would not do that because I'm a good driver. I don't cut people off like that, right? Why can't that guy be as, as selfless a driver as I am? The jerk. See, I had a good driver righteousness. It made it easy for me to condemn that guy because he didn't perform up to my standard of pharisaical driving, right? I wanted to be that guy's Holy Spirit. And I tried to be for a minute. It didn't work very well. But see, it's the actual Holy Spirit from God who's the one who convicts us of, of righteousness. Jesus had to die for my driving sins too because, yeah, maybe I didn't drive like that guy that day, but I do not have a perfect record of loving my neighbor when I'm out driving around. I've cut people off. I've refused to let people merge. I've leaned on the horn. I've driven selfishly and aggressively at times. And see, the more that I see Jesus' righteousness, the less impressed I'm going to be with my own and how, how miserable and weak 
the righteousness that I think I can build up for myself that lets me look down on, on that other guy. When the Holy Spirit helps us see that it's about Jesus' record of righteousness, man, that is convicting. It's humbling and it's freeing. It's such good news to be freed from that because the pressure is off. I don't, I don't have to be a driving Pharisee anymore. I don't have to be a grammar Nazi. I don't have to be the fashion police, right? But because it's, it's not up to me. The, the Spirit of God is the one who, con, who convicts people of sin. It's not up to me to, to you know, enforce political correctness or reject political correctness and you know, draw some identity about what I do with that, Right? It frees me to, to keep from looking down on the weird kid who eats by himself in the cafeteria because we're all weird, you know, just in different ways, right? It, it, it helps me stop judging people based on where they live or how they educate their kids or how they spend their money or, or how they vote or, or how they exercise their Christian freedom. That's what the Spirit helping us to grow in the truth of Jesus' righteousness does in, in our hearts and in our lives. Because if I am in Christ, I am righteous. I already am. If I have been placed in Christ by faith, his righteousness, his perfect record is already credited to me. What am I going to add to that by what I have done? And that's what the Spirit comes to convict us, to convince us, to show us it's done. There's nothing more for me to earn. There's no record for me to keep or, or accomplish or build up. The Holy Spirit comes to graciously, lovingly say, it's not about batting a thousand. It's not about getting it right. It's not about looking good and, and having it all together. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And what he has done is take care of my sins, past, present, and future past, present, and future. God knew, even before he brought me to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that I was going to be a self-righteous jerk on the highway because of that guy that cut me off. And he still saved me, and he still loves me. And I'm still declared righteous in Christ in spite of it. But now when I start to see the righteousness of Jesus instead of my own, that makes me want to look more like him. And it empowers and encourages me and shows me what I need to look like in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of my flesh. And something that I can build up and feel good about. That is so freeing and life-giving. And God wants us to know and live in that truth. And then what that does is the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Dale Rooks is a school crossing guard in Florida, and uh, he had tried everything he knew to get people to quit speeding through the school zone. He tried flags and lights and warnings and stopping people and talking to people, and nothing worked. And then he had an idea. He went home one day. He got a hairdryer out of the bathroom, wrapped it in black electrical tape, and started standing in his cross guard and pointing it at people as they're driving. And he said, it was amazing. It looked just enough like a radar gun that people were suddenly slamming on their brakes and driving 25 like they were supposed to be in the school zone. Why did that work? 
Because now all of a sudden, there was the threat of an immediate and painful judgment that they didn't want to face. And it at least worked on adjusting their behavior, if not their hearts. The cross points us to the judgment of God. And graciously, his judgment is poured out on his son for all who will come to him in faith by Christ. The cross is where God demonstrates and warns about judgment. And he says the ruler of this world is judged. Not Pilate, the Roman governor, not the Jewish leaders, not the crowd that called for Jesus' blood, but Satan, this fallen angel who is opposed to God and everything that he stands for and, and believes in him. He is called the ruler of this world. You can put that in air quotes if you want because God still rules. Satan hates and opposes God in all that he stands for. He, he loves pride and conflict and bitterness and envy and, and wrath and lust and greed and conflict and division and and he hates mercy and humility and kindness and generosity and patience. And, and he especially scorns self-sacrifice and self-giving love. And the ways of this world are judged. The values of this world are judged in Christ. And there will be a judgment, not just on those things generically, but on us because we are part of that system. G.K. Chesterton, the British journalist and writer and Christian apologist, wrote this, men do not differ much about what things they call evils. They differ tremendously about what evils they call excusable. Men do not differ much about what things they call evils. They differ tremendously about what evils they find excusable. Here is the truth about judgment that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. None of it is excusable. None of it will be excused. And we will all give an account to God for the things that we have done things that we should have done that we didn't, the things that we would have liked to have done, but we didn't have the courage or the opportunity to do it, the things that we muttered under our breath that we'd like to do, the anger, the pride, the selfishness, the greed, the lust, the angry thoughts, the selfish motives, all of it. And Jesus is graciously inviting us to decide what side you are on. You will either love and follow and treasure this world and the ruler of this world and the values of this world and you will stand before God defenseless in the day of judgment. Or you will come to Christ and you will love and treasure and follow Jesus knowing that all of that judgment has already been placed on him at the cross. And you will have nothing to fear for God's righteous judgment because you have humbly and worshipfully come to Jesus to take his righteousness, recognizing that he took the punishment that you and we all deserve. You have to decide. There is no middle ground. You will either give an account to God for your life or you will take the account that Jesus provides for you for his righteousness. 
and having already paid the judgment. And for those who are in Christ, there is a glorious future. We are called co-heirs with Christ of every spiritual blessing that God has. We will live with joy and life and beauty and wholeness and everything that God intended us to be. And that day will come when Jesus returns and breaks the power of the ruler of this world once and for all. And in the meantime, Satan has no power over those who are in Christ. We are not helpless victims. The ruler of this world looks impressive, but he is nothing compared to Jesus, on whom he has no claim. We are not helpless victims. We are conquerors. We are overcomers. We are victors in the middle of the strife if we are in Christ. And, and that also reminds me, man, the Spirit helps me see how much I still love to judge, right? I can be really good at spotting what's wrong with other people and, and passing judgment, but Jesus is the only one qualified to judge. Leave room for God's judgment. The Spirit frees us as we grow in God's truth of needing to judge and condemn and measure other people because I know I'm a debtor to grace. Pastor John Ortberg tells this great story about early in his marriage, he and his wife sold their Volkswagen Beetle to buy their nice piece of real adult furniture. He said it was a pink sofa, but for what they spent for it, it was called mauve. So... The man at the sofa store tells us all about, you know, how to take care of it and how to protect it. And, uh, and Orberg says, we had very small children in those days. Does anyone want to guess what the very first commandment in our household became when we brought the mauve sofa home? Do not sit on the mauve sofa. Do not play on the mauve sofa. Do not eat around the mauve sofa. Do not look at the mauve sofa. Do not even think about the mauve sofa. On all the other chairs in the house, you may surely sit, but on the day that you sit on the mob sofa, thou shalt surely die. <laughs> and then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mob sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. And Ortberg's wife assembled the children to look at the stain on the sofa, their six-year-old, their four-year-old, and their boy who was about two, and... And uh, she said, children, do you see that stain on the sofa? I called the man at the sofa store. He said, it will not come out in eternity. Do you know how long eternity is, children? That's how long you're going to sit here until I find out who put the stain on the sofa. And they all sat there saying nothing. Until finally the six-year-old cracked and said, Laura did it. And Laura said, no, I didn't. And then they lapsed back into silence. Ortberg says, I knew that none of them would confess because they had never seen their mom this angry before. And I knew that none of them would confess because they knew that if any of them owned up to it, they would be sitting in the timeout chair for eternity. And I knew that none of them would confess because in reality, I was the one who had put the stain on the sofa and I was not saying anything. <laughs> Here's the truth, Ortberg says. We have all stained the sofa, all of us. And God brings us to that truth, not to condemn us, not to shame us, not to punish us, 
not to exile us, but to bring us into light and freedom and forgiveness and rescue. And and we see that all throughout the Bible, don't we? Where we deserve judgment, God gives mercy. Where we deserve exile, God gives welcome. Where we deserve rejection, God gives love. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has come to do. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to show us and and lead us in knowing and experiencing and and living out. Paul tells us that, that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness. When you see the kindness of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, it it leads you to be willing to lay down your defenses and to be humble and and honest and approachable. So if you're a follower of Christ, we have reason to rejoice today. We rejoice that God graciously gives his Holy Spirit to guide us in truth, and as we grow in that truth, we don't have to hold our hands out and be defensive. And be dishonest and, and try and distract or delay or deny. Or... We, we allow the truth to seep in and grow us and shape us and change us because in the truth of the gospel we find mercy and forgiveness and life and hope and joy. And, and then as we do that now, the Spirit comes to live in us and and not just to guide us in truth but to grow us in that truth so, so that we start to look more and more like what Jesus has already declared us to be beloved sons and daughters who reflect the Father who is full of grace and truth. May I pray for us? Father, thank you that Jesus makes it safe for us to come to you and to hear the truth, the truth that we often don't want to hear. God, would you be gracious to send out your Holy Spirit on us today? Whether we already know you, whether there are people here who have never come to the point of trusting you and and receiving your rescue and your life and following you in faith, God, would you pour out your Spirit on all of us that the Spirit would come and guide us in all truth, the truth that we need to hear. Lord, I have no idea what truth 200 plus people need to hear today, but you know, and your spirit can and will speak to each one of us. God, help us, help us to be receptive and sensitive, that that we would listen and stop putting up defenses. God, humble us. Help us to put our shields down, God, to be people of truth, people of life. Jesus, as we come now to this uh, table that, that you invite us to gather around, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We thank you. We thank you that we we gather not just to remember what happened centuries ago, but we gather to meet with you again, to be reminded and strengthened and nourished. Would you do that, Jesus? Would you meet with us here? Bless us as, as we gather with you, Jesus. Pray in your name. Amen.